The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Carol, great to see you. We are Good now, to see you, Jeff. We're now well into season six. It's exciting to be doing this again. We're going to try something a little bit different with this episode. Maybe not so different. We've done it before, but it hasn't been as uh, intentional as it is today. Carol and I have been talking about the fact that we've interviewed a lot of composers on this program, and we love doing that. And we realized with a great deal of sadness that most of the composers we'd like to talk to for this season are dead. And the only solution was to just talk about them. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Brahms, particularly the fourth symphony. What do you say, Carol? Should we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Fourth symphony came at a very important time in his career. Let's set the stage a little bit with the context of that year, 1885. Yes, some really interesting and also important things happened. Not that the two are musically exclusive. In history, uh, this symphony was premiered in October of 1885. But before that, that was, of course, the time that the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York Harbor in June of 1885. Sarah E. Good was the first African-American woman to apply for and receive a patent for the hideaway bed. So motels across the world have Ms. Good to thank for that. It was the twilight of the Victorian era. As a person from Central Texas, I found it very interesting that December 1st was the first time that Dr. Pepper was ever served. I grew up in Dr. Pepper country in Central Texas and in in Houston area. And so that was a very fun fact. And uh, the first patent on an automobile was given in 1885 to the Benz company, to Mr. Benz, who invented the motor wagon. So have you seen that had... car, Carol? Have no, you seen I pictures? haven't. It had only three wheels and it topped out at 10 miles per hour. Woohoo! That's 1885 for you. Um, yes. I, this is all really interesting. And I love how your, your list of stats runs the gamut from the arrival of the Statue of Liberty to the arrival of Dr. Pepper in, uh, or was it Mr. Pibb? No, it's Dr. Pepper. I lose. Let's I always lose track between those two. I always lose. I, I, the entire state of Texas is screaming at me right now through the through their radios. But here's a couple of other things for you in 1885, particularly on the cultural side that I found interesting. That year, Mark Twain published Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the Mikado also premiered. Could you believe that? The Mikado. Oh, yeah, that's the other end of the spectrum. The same year as Brahms. It's amazing to me that those two things were happening at the same time. And as a baseball fan, I feel like I have to mention that this year, the Chicago White Stockings won the National League pennant against the New York Giants. So as the White Sox are giving a shot at a pennant this season, they did win it back in 1885. Well, Carol, I think it's important that we set Brahms in some context too, the context of where he was in his career and in his life at that point uh, in 1885. First though, you're a pianist. How How have you come to Brahms as an artist? Well, Brahms himself was a pianist, and you can see that on every page of any keyboard writing he did. I primarily work with, in the collaborative art form, so I work with um, the leader of Brahms. I've played dozens of Brahms' leader. And also, he has amazing chamber music that he's written for not just uh, stringed instruments, but also there's an amazing horn trio for horn, violin, and piano. And I've just uh, gotten the opportunity to play so much chamber music. And I know that was 
an early focus of his life. You're making me jump ahead here because there's a question I've wanted to ask you much later in the program, but you just mentioned the leader and I feel like I have to go there now. Do you find, I do, I'm going to, I'm going to preset your answer by letting you know that I find that the symphonies are, all of the music of Brahma makes me feel this way, but the symphonies in particular, boy, do they make me wish he written an opera. Do you ever feel that way? You know, I do feel that way in one sense but I also can't imagine his voice in that overtly theatrical way. Right. If that makes sense. Sure. I feel like what he created was, I mean, the, the symphonies are noble and grand and huge, but the vocal writing he did is just so intimate. And so um, I don't know that I would say that he's actually writing always in a religious fashion, but it has this religiosity to it. You know, I mean, it's obvious if he in the German Requiem, he's writing a religious piece. Yeah. But even in his choral music, that's potentially secular. It all has a gravity, and I don't know. I'm 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 not convinced that that could have tra traveled across into the operatic art form. But you know, you don't have a, a big opera from Mahler either. He's he's but he's actually the one that of the German Romantics, and he's a late Romantic, obviously. He's the one that I really wish I had heard that opera of. Well, you're bumping up against this central mystery of Brahms, which is that he was the unelected head of the absolute music, the conservative movement during this whole war of the romantics that was happening in the mid to late 19th century. And I think about, you know, the fact, and this is a fact, that there's a lot more extra musical context in his music than he ever gets credit for. And the idea that his his bona fides as a conservative makes it impossible for him to have carried out something as programmatic as an opera. I don't buy it. I think there was one in him. The fact that he didn't ever do it probably means that he would have disagreed with me and I can live with that. But there's something about the tunefulness and the episodic nature of the symphonies that make me feel like he could have done it. Well, anyways, we digress. Speaking of this whole war of the romantics, that was in full force still at this point. Wagner only died in what, 1883, I believe. And that was right about the time that the Third Symphony was being premiered, which was a massive success for Brahms, massive success. Successful enough and important enough as a premiere that there were several Wagnerians in the building, even though their God had just died and they were trying to hiss down the fans, which included Dvorak and it didn't work. So fast forward, Brahms is at this place in his career where his popularity has never been higher. He can kind of do whatever he wants, which of course for him probably included a lot of self-doubt, but he writes this fourth symphony in the wake of that huge successful third symphony in the wake of that crystallizing moment for his own fame and his own career. But you and I talked before about how long it took Brahms to come to the symphony as a as a form as a genre and i i've written about this a lot i've talked about it a lot and i certainly have thought about it a lot brahms avoided the symphony he avoided the string quartet two very different forms but he avoided he avoided them both for the same exact reason and that reason was ludwig van beethoven simple the ghost of beethoven stalked this poor man the entire first four decades of his life in fact he was not I think he was in his early 40s when he finally wrote a symphony and same for the string quartets. 
Yeah, just for those of you out there who like dates, Brahms was born in 1833 and the first symphony wasn't premiered until 1876. 1876, yeah. He was in his early 40s and he was he was scared to death that he would um, not be able to live up to this great standard that Beethoven had achieved. Beethoven had done something with his nine symphonies that made it very difficult to be his successor. And everybody in the world at that point thought that Brahms was that person. And I think it scared him to death so much so that... He spent his time writing other kinds of orchestral music. He wrote the serenades. He the, His first big orchestral piece was the first piano concerto. Um, in the chamber music world, he stayed away from string quartets and wrote sextets and the horn trio and other things. I think other parts of the classical music genre benefited from Brahms's reticence. But imagine if he'd started symphonies sooner, Carol. We wouldn't just be talking about four. We might be talking about eight or 10 or who knows. Never 10 because, you know, there was that, imagined curse point. of the ninth that's a good point it worked on beethoven it worked on Mahler. <laughs> well i do and i i want to say first of all i love that you mentioned the piano concerto the first piano concerto as a symphonic work because it really is bigger than just a piano concerto i mean he really pushed the form of that and that was my one of my dream pieces as i was growing up one of the first times I, things i heard live with andre watts one of the first big piano works and it it always seemed bigger than a concerto it was a symphony with piano. I found it really interesting as I read about Brahms that he was full of self-doubt throughout. And that's why he couldn't quite push himself to make that choice to do the symphony. I mean, he was just, constantly obsessed with self-doubt and I, and little things would push him over the edge. He was, he was engaged to be married at the, at the time that he wrote the second string sextet. And it was the premiere of the first piano concerto that was called banal and horrid or something like that by, by reviewers that forced him to imagine coming home to a wife after such a premiere and having to explain himself and be consoled by her. And it was something that he just couldn't accept. It just, it was not possible for him to live that kind of life. And that was one of the reasons that were probably multiple, multiple, but that was one of the reasons why that engagement broke off. But the context of the fourth is interesting in that he was coming off of the huge success of the third symphony. He wasn't coming off of a, another gut punch of which he had many in his life. He was actually coming off of the high point of his popularity. So to be able to write this magical, incredible, summative, cumulative fourth symphony without the, his usual muse, which was darkness, <laughs> to me, is really amazing. We should probably dig into that a little bit, shouldn't we? So maybe let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll dive into the piece in a little bit more detail. No matter who you are or what you like, Utah Symphony and Utah Opera has the music for you, which is why we have a range of performances from Pops to Puccini and films to Jean-Francais. See which option is right for you at usuo.org calendar. So as often happened, Brahms actually shared the symphony while it was under construction with colleagues and friends of his. And uh, the very famous critic Edward Henslick has some things to say about that night. He was the page turner when Brahms and a, another colleague performed a two piano version in this home. And he said at the end of it that he felt that he had been beaten by two very intelligent people. That's what people say about our podcast, Carol. Exactly. Exactly. That's going to be on the t-shirt. When we get the merch going, we're going to get that designed. Yeah. Uh, Hanslick 
and he's he's one that is known for his music criticism throughout the uh, the latter half of the 19th century. So uh, after this, he had this to say about the actual piece once he heard it in its final form. He said, for the musician, there is not another modern piece so productive as a subject for study. It is like a dark well. The longer we look into it, the more brightly the stars shine back. Wow. I just think I, that's beautifully poetic. That in the context of the Wagnerians finding his music so anachronistic and so stuck in the past when others saw it as frankly revolutionary in terms of what it was doing to the form, that fascinates me more than anything else. I, I'm also recalling that, you know, Carol Brahms was in his early 50s when he wrote this piece. It's exactly my age. But back then, people started looking mostly in the rearview mirror. He was at a very melancholy place in his life. Now, look, when was that ever not true with Brahms? But right. reading the Greeks, he was actually making arrangements for this score in particular, should the worst thing happen. He actually was preparing not to be around much longer. So he was he was in a, I don't want to say a dark place, but a mature place when he wrote this music. A and thoughtful I, place. Yeah. And I feel like, I, I feel like it has a summative quality to it. Like it was, I called it in the program note that I wrote for this for Utah Symphony, as much manifesto as piece of art. I honestly feel like he was making a statement, a grand statement about his imprint on the symphonic form. He was finally ready 10 years after the premiere of the first to, no, not even 10 years, uh, eight years after the premiere of the first to say, okay, these are the footprints I leave after Beethoven. Take them as you will. And I think one of the scholars I read, and I wish I could remember which one I didn't, I believe it or not, we actually do research these episodes deeply. What? And so I, didn't. I was, well, okay, speak for yourself. <laughs> you don't have a doctorate, do you? No, I don't. Oh, see, clearly. see that's the difference. Clearly. Um, Anyway, uh, one of the musicologists I read about had a great way of putting it. They said rather than looking at Brahms as a traditionalist, they looked at someone who revamped the traditions. So maybe he wasn't doing the program programmatic works of, you know, uh, Liszt and Scriabin right. and all these composers that were out there at that time. And then, of course, the great operas of Wagner. But mm -hmm. he was looking at those traditional structures and making them really unique and they're fresh in his hands. Yeah, he he may not have progressed as much as other factions of the art music world wanted him to, but he perfected things that were nascent when he first got into the game. And I think this piece embodies that perfection. I've often described this piece to friends and to colleagues alike as one of the few pieces I know where there's not a single note out of place. It is in my mind a perfect utterance. It is a perfect 40 minutes of music. And I, when asked to be more specific about why, I can't. I just advise people to listen to it and you'll see. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I really felt so delighted that I got to listen to several renditions of the symphony and rediscover it. I don't know that I've given a, a deep listen to it since my graduate school days. And it really is, It's it has the economy of the fifth symphony to me, Beethoven's fifth symphony is just also another perfect piece where there's nothing out of place. It's just so precise, but also so emotionally evocative. I had real emotional reactions to listening to it and uh, really connected with this 
darkness that he was kind of working through through the piece. You know, it's it's interesting for me to hear how you found your way into Brahms as a performer because in a former life, I played horn in orchestras and the piece that convinced me that Brahms was a composer I needed to understand a lot better was the Fourth Symphony and it was playing it as a horn player. I just remember sitting there and do mostly listening because the horn parts in Brahms symphonies are you know, difficult because they're in crazy keys and they're challenging because he depended on a lot of virtuosity from his wind players. But you do spend a lot of time listening in Brahms to the string section and to the wind section and being immersed in this piece actually from the middle of the orchestra. That's how I found it first and most deeply. So every recording I hear, every time I study the piece to write about it or to talk about it like today, I I, I do it by setting down the horn first, if that makes any sense, because that's my way in. That first movement, it really starts with, I, I just am taken by even the initial theme that we hear. It's got this descending mm-hmm. motive that repeats. And it, it's so, um, it's so, gosh, I can't think of a really good word. It's just so sad. It's so it's melancholy, sad. that opening phrase. It's like a sigh. Da-dum, yep. Don't you feel like it's a work in progress too? I feel like there are so many pieces in the repertoire that sound like a needle was dropped. And this piece does that for me too. It sounds like something that's already well-established, been happening for not, if not many minutes, many centuries. You feel like you're dropping into something that is already fully formed from the first two notes. Yes, it's an emotion that's been going on for decades, like you say, and we just come into it and we just turn up our volume and there we are. Yeah. So I mentioned Beethoven five and the second movement is the thing that really connected me with that earlier piece. When I think of Beethoven five and it's perfection, it's a war horse, but it's a war horse for a reason. It's a war horse because it's fantastic. I think of this movement that is, um, has these amazing wind parts. And that's what I'm, I bet as a horn player, that second movement of Brahms four also with these featured wind moments is so meaningful to play it's really challenging as well as meaningful it's it's exposed exposed like i said difficult keys and you know from a from a musician standpoint particularly a horn player standpoint you do approach these movements with a great deal of fear you know because of the exposure and the challenge of rendering them well enough to match the uh you know to match the, the the piece itself i just we just recently had Fima Bromfman with us at the Grand Teton Music Festival, and he was quoting Arthur Schnabel as having said, "You know, no performance is as good as the piece itself," which you know that's the goal of every musician is to try to match the composition itself, and that's certainly true in those middle movements of this symphony from a playing standpoint. Yeah, that uh, the opening wind materials, and it is amazing also when the strings come, but the, the winds come in with this melancholy. Um, elegiac mm-hmm. sort of feeling. Again, it's commenting in a way on something that seems to have happened years ago. Mm-hmm. 
So after the brooding opening in E minor of the symphony and then the elegiac nature of the E major movement, movement two, we get to what would fit in the place of a scherzo, though Brahms never identified it as such. The traditional four movement form has a scherzo or a minuet in that second or third movement place, depending on the composer. But Brahms pretends in a way not to adopt that but the mood of it is definitely a scherzo. There's a brusqueness. There's almost a peasanty kind of gruffness to it. I think about, I have two cats, they're siblings, and one is very delicate and princess-like. And then uh, the other one is just like goofy and sort of derpy and plops on my lap whenever he feels like and walks through my food and all of that. And it, this has a kind of feeling like that. It's a little bit, a little bit brash. Yeah, brash is the perfect word. And I think it's the brash of your two cats that um, Brahms' friend and biographer, um, Max Kalbeck, said when he was talking about this movie, is sounding like a public festival. He heard something very satirical in it. And I think that's definitely present here. And, you know, satire in Brahms, here we are again bumping up against that absolutism, the, the, the lack of subjectivity. But there's always a little bit of that in there. There's always something. It's never as it's never as cut and dry as some of his detractors claimed it was. And I think this movement makes that case really clearly. Well, and it makes me think of that uh, image we often are given in music history of Brahms being kind of an old, dumpy, bearded fellow right. uh, with a beer stein in one hand and a music composition book in the other and just kind of peasanting his way through German village streets or Austrian village streets. He might have been that way by the time he got to the symphonies, but we have to remember that for the majority of his career, he was not that. He was a young guy. That famous picture rather of him handsome. leaning. Rather handsome. Rather dashing, in fact. And that picture we all see of him leaning back at the piano with the crossed hands and the cigar in his mouth, portly, bearded, definitely in his declining years. <laughs> that's that's one snapshot of him. It might exactly. apply to this symphony. It might actually apply to this symphony, but it doesn't apply to the decades of experience and um, sort of uh, compounded successes and failures that that I think inform this piece from an, mm -hmm. on, on an emotional level. And I would say if you're looking at the four movements of this piece, this is the sunniest of the four. For sure. It's for sure. The, the sun breaks through the clouds just for a brief moment, and we yeah. see a little moment of hope. It do, yeah, it does. That brashness is not, I don't think, intended to be hostile. I think no, satirical. I think Kalbach's word is the right one. Yeah, joyful and satirical. Yeah.
So then we come to the fourth movement and this fourth movement is really pretty epic. Yeah. There is a lot to be said about it. And in fact, in that evening of two piano music, one of his friends came to his apartment, Max Callback, the very next day with some feedback from the night before. And his suggestion was that he release that fourth movement as a standalone piece and not yeah. as part and rework the other movements before presenting the entire symphony. So what makes this such an amazing movement? It's it's epic in a way that he wasn't often. Um, it's the chorales, I think, lend it a sense of seriousness, that churchy seriousness that you were referring to before. He actually quotes Bach in this, doesn't he, Carol? Not one of the other bees. One of the other bees, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's we should talk a little bit about how he quotes it because it's an important musicological thing that people can anchor onto. Yeah, so he quotes the opening of the final movement of the Cantata 150. So what's really amazing about this piece, we're look, we go to a sort of ancient form. So we have these two somewhat esoteric words, shakon and pasacalia, and they both apply in one way or another to this movement. Musical, uh, music theorists can't even agree which it is. We were just uh, re recreating I th my remembrance from the days, and don't quote me because this will take away all the legitimacy of my doctorate, <laughs> is that the shakon was repeated a, a short harmonic progression for eight bars, whatever, that just repeats throughout the piece and is varied. So it becomes the, the basis for the variations. The Pasacalia is more of just a bass line that does that. Your Pachelbel's Canon is a great example of a Pasacalia more than a Canon impact. So this Pasacalia, Chacon, whatever you want to call it from the Bach Cantata forms the seed for this series of variations. Was Brahms new to variations? I don't recall that he was. No, he'd done it before. He did it for the Haydn variations, um, which is a which is a, a, one of his more famous orchestral works. Gets played fairly often these days. Still, um, I I want to draw people's attention though. And since my non-existent doctorate is impossible to delegitimize, I'll just throw things out there willy nilly. But the um, Cantata 150, it, the title, the translation of the title is "Lord, I long to be near you." And I think this harkens back to what I was mentioning before about a man getting his affairs in order, a man recognizing himself in his December years. And I think, honestly, I've used this this word so many times, not only in this podcast, but anytime I talk about this, the summative quality, the the it's it's is it valedictory. A, a, a late life statement, uh, yes. not not benedictory. That's something no, entirely different. Valedictory, yeah. Valedictory. And I, and I and I hear that in this music, and I think that quote was specifically chosen because of it. As I was looking at the score, I saw that uh, trombones were included in this movement for the first time in the whole piece. And trombones, historically, if you look at um, things like magic flute, they come in when you're talking about the afterlife anyway. The trombones appear for the Masonic things in the flute, but and then when you get to Don Giovanni, um, it's the trombones come in for the first time when Giovanni's being dragged down to hell. So it's there is definitely a sense of something bigger than just 
human experience when you it's add an, those trombones in. It's another nod to Beethoven too, because Beethoven was the first one to see the real value of trombones in a symphonic setting with the fifth symphony. So um, I, I think, I think that context is here as well. So, yeah. And he took this, this seed of this Chacon and he made uh, 30 amazing variations of it. I think it's interesting. I've read somewhere that this, the last orchestral concert Brahms attended just a, just a very short time before he passed was a concert of this piece in Vienna. So it's not just the last thing that he left for us in terms of this genre of the symphony that scared him so much, but that he eventually helped redefine. It was also the last thing he heard of himself, at least from an orchestra live. That to me is, uh, that's deep in a way that I don't really fully understand how to talk about. Yeah, because it's it seems you could make a case that it's coincidental, but also it has, when we look back on it from our perspective of you know more than a hundred years, we just see it a different way. Exactly. We should talk about recordings a little bit, give people some listening um, notes, because um, I, I, I do think people are going to want to hear the piece before they go to the concerts at the end of the month with the Utah Symphony. As we record, these pieces are being performed at the end of October with the brand new music director of the Chicago Lyric Opera, Carol Enrique Mazzola, who I had the uh, great pleasure of meeting last weekend as we record. He'll be doing Brahms IV with the Utah Symphony at the end of the month. So let's let's give people some some listening homework. What recordings do you suggest? Well, I started out listening, uh, reviewing, re-listening to the sort of seminal, one of the seminal recordings, Carlos Kleiber and the Vienna Philharmonic from 1981. And I just had, there's, there's different orchestras have just different characters in and of themselves. And then you put another different conductors and there's a whole different stamp that happens. So I mean, the four recordings we're going to talk about are wildly different, but there was an apocalyptic nature to, so the brooding became apocalypse. There's these pizzicato, the way that the strings, the string section approaches the pizzicato, there's a depth and a profoundness. And then when the trombone chords open that Pasacoli movement, that Chacon movement, it's almost like the heavens crack open at that mm -hmm. moment. Uh, I guess apocalyptic is the best word I can think about. It's just, it's a very deep rendition and a very profound rendition yeah. compared to some of the others I've heard, which were all equally valid. Totally. As a contrast, I'll offer up this recording that Nicholas Harnencourt did with the Berlin Philharmonic back in the 90s. I think it was 97. Um, he, this recording is one of the most amazing interpretations of Brahms I've ever heard. It's so transparent and shot through with light and nothing lasts very long. It's all very ephemeral. ephemeral. Chords are dropped rather than held. One of the things I think composers, sorry, conductors and orchestras get both right and wrong about how they interpret Beethoven symphonies as compared to Mozart and Brahms symphonies as compared to Beethoven is this increase in density, sonic and orchestrational density. It's there, the composers wrote it, and sometimes the conductors lean into it way too much. This is the example of the exact opposite. It is the most weightless, and untethered playing I've ever heard on this music. I would, I would advise people to listen just as a counterpoint to the Kleiber, which is not over dense. I'm not saying that, but there's just something incredibly see-through about Harnoncourt's version that is fascinating to me. I also dove into an unexpected Brahms recording, and this was John Elliott Gardner. When I think of John Elliott Gardner, I think of Monteverdi. I think of 
all those early composers, Mozart and Haydn, you know, for the modern ones, if you will. But he has recorded these Brahms symphonies and there is an elegance and a clarity to those recordings. And you'll see, if you even just look at the timings, it's about four minutes faster overall than the Kleiber. And there's an urgency and a, not a sparkle, but like a, a an activity to the the first movement and the, that just kind of pulls it in a different direction than Kleiber ever did. And uh, I loved listening to that. Plus there's um, this classical clarity to every single individual line. So it's not overly, you don't get, it's still, you hear all the lines, but uh, there's just a sparkle. I think of like a lacy texture almost. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of takes some of the apocryphal weight of, out of what you hear with some of the other recordings and kind of just gives you an urgency. I want to mention one more recording. Your and childhood I think, favorite. And what's my childhood favorite? I mean, when when you're when you're learning to be a musician and when you think you're going to be a professional musician, you often find your way into certain orchestras and certain conductors. And when I was in high school and uh, after, I was obsessed with the Chicago Symphony and Sir George Schulte. If they didn't record it, it probably wasn't a good piece. And his recording of the Brahms cycle with Chicago Symphony is something that formed my understanding of the piece to a limited degree, because as I said before, I didn't really understand the piece until I played it, but it formed my early appreciation of Brahms. When I go back and listen to those recordings now, they're a little hard edged, they're a little square, they're a little brighter than I would probably, not a little more muscular than probably I would want to hear Brahms now. But um, I do find something very comforting and very familiar. And if you want to hear a great American orchestra play this piece at the absolute height of its powers in the late 1970s um, uh, when he recorded it with them, this is a good one to put into the hopper to compare to the others. I think you'll find that all of these recordings are available on Spotify or whatever yep. streaming service you mm -hmm. use. If this little conversation between friends has piqued your interest, in Brahms Fourth Symphony. We'd love to invite you to hear the Utah Symphony perform it at the end of October. We have a performance in Utah County at the UVU Norda Center on Thursday, October 21st, and then two performances at our home in downtown Salt Lake City, Bravanel Hall, October 22nd and 23rd. And if you have other pieces you'd like to hear Jeff and me put our own personal spin on, give you our thoughts about it. We don't pretend to be musicologists. We don't pretend to be recording critics, but we are music lovers and music professionals who love to talk about our art. Please write in with your suggestions. One of us has a doctorate too. <laughs> I'm never going to hear the end of that. <laughs> Nor but should I'm, you. We always ask our guests to plug their Instagram pages. And since there's no guests here, but us, I'm going to plug my cat's Instagram. So you can see the derpiness of Ziggy and the pretty princess of Zelda. They are Ziggy and Zelda in Zion. So if you need some good cat content, hop on over on Instagram and give them a look. Well, thank you, Carol. This was fun. I can't wait to do it again. I can't wait to have guests in the studio with us again. I'm just so excited to be launching season six with you. This is really going to be a fun one. Thank you all at home. If you're listening there or if you're on the go, we appreciate you being with us. And if you haven't yet, it would really help if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon at one of those live concerts. Until next time on the podcast, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. 
Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.